Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I pity the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! Almost the end of February, you know what that means, basketball season coming to a close, lacrosse season is underway, but most importantly, another edition of Fizz 5 presented by Orange Fizz with Carter Bainbridge. I'm Cameron Ezer, breaking down the top five topics, the most pertinent topics over the last week in the Syracuse stratosphere. Carter, how's it going? Going well, Cam. Uh, The weather outside is nice. Things haven't been going quite as nicely for SU basketball, I know that. Uh, but we'll have more to say about that in just a few moments. I uh, hope you enjoyed the Duke game. I know a lot of people did, but uh, I know there were definitely some people inside the Dome who didn't. So we'll get to that shortly. That was a tough one a couple of days ago. Syracuse, of course, falling by over 20 points. That's now eight straight wins for Duke over Syracuse. But again, let's bask in the good weather and this version of great radio. And let's head into topic number one. Number one. Topic number one, Carter, has to be the Duke game. 77-55 in favor of the Blue Devils. Wire to wire after Duke went on a 21-2 run, a 13-0 run in that first half as well. And, I mean, your instant reactions, you probably felt them on Saturday with most of Syracuse's faithful, but uh, what can you say about that game? Boy, oh boy. Yeah, I was at this game as a rare fan, I don't go to a lot of games as a fan these days. I was not a media member for this game. So I got to watch Syracuse get taken to the woodshed from pretty close proximity, not as close as media members, but close enough to tell just how bad it was after it started out 1919, I think was the last time it was close. And then Duke just went on a crazy run and it totally deflated everything Syracuse was doing on its sideline. And to me, this is just par for the course for what has been lately over the last couple of years, a fly windshield type of quote unquote rivalry. I don't even think we've written articles about that. It it isn't a rivalry. I'll agree with our other writer, Ian Unsworth, who said as much, maybe even forget the windshield. It's more like a fly versus flamethrower rivalry or something. I'm not sure, but whatever it is, Duke is the hammer. And Syracuse is the nail. Duke has beaten SU now eight times in a row, dating back to 2019. The last time Syracuse got him was that crazy road upset in Cameron Indoor when Elijah Hughes made that half-court shot, and that set the tone for what was a very memorable that was game. Three quarter. That, was, that was three quarters court. I mean, that was the well, most memorable <laughs> Syracuse-Duke moment dating back to the Gillen shot of Jim Beheim throwing his jacket away. <laughs> yeah, more, more than half-court. And, and, you know, hope Elijah Hughes is doing well. He was at the game against Duke, and uh, he couldn't have liked what he saw. Since he made that shot, Hughes did, SU has lost to Duke by scores of 10, 12, 9, 14, 20, 25 last year, 9 and 22 points, including four of those times at home. There's no clearer divide between the two teams than that. I mean, all you have to do is look at the score. John Shire is a great recruiter, and you saw firsthand why that matters that Syracuse doesn't have a really really good card to play against Duke when the two battle for a serious recruit. Kyle Filipowski was a huge target for SU during his cycle. We wrote a ton about him on Fizz. He had that picture that everybody remembers where he's got his arms in a, in a T pose and he's holding basketballs with both hands. Instead, he goes to Duke. The Blue Devils swooped in and got him. And uh, against Syracuse on Saturday, he had 14 points and 12 rebounds. He's having an outstanding year. And, uh, you know, you look at him and you think, man, what could Syracuse be if it got guys like him? But SU has no chips to play when it comes down to, do you want to play for the Orange or do you want to play for the Blue Devils? There's not much of a conversation to be had, I don't think. Do you want to play under Jim Beheim and be a part of what he's doing? Or do you want to try and create the new generation of great Blue Devils basketball? I'll just, I'll leave it at that. It doesn't seem like a very difficult choice to me, and I imagine it isn't for most recruits who get that same speech. Uh, And you also saw what happened on Saturday when prepared teams come in and just beat Syracuse's zone, like teams that keep it together, stay calm, and just attack it. SU is a one-trick pony 
in that regard with the zone. And it is a faded, dilapidated trick at this point. Syracuse every season just basically hopes it can scrape into the tournament somehow and play jittery, unprepared teams that maybe face that zone for the first time all year. They don't play zone and panic in the tournament, kind of like San Diego State did and then West Virginia did uh, in 2021. That's the type of season we regard as a success when you basically pull a little sleight of hand on a couple teams in the tournament and then you play someone like Houston who's prepared and you just get blasted. Most teams these days shoot the three and do it very well. Duke is not usually one of those teams, not a great three-point shooting team this year, but you wouldn't know it if all you watched was Saturday because the Blue Devils hit 13 of their 26 three-pointers. 50% for those of you who are English majors. Uh, and Duke just made it look ridiculously easy. And that's what it is against Syracuse's defense. Very easy to shoot the three. SU is a bad perimeter defense team. It doesn't meaningfully contest those shots. And routinely, the Orange are still out of position on defense in February. We've been talking about that problem since November. The forwards are still leaking up to the wings up top. You're having guards run over and jump at guys in the corner as they take uncontested threes. It's sloppy. And it's embarrassing defense. So SU ranks 360th, by the way, with 363 Division I teams in three-pointers allowed per game. Teams, you know, teams are averaging 9.7 per game against SU, just a shade under 10, 10 three-pointers a game against the Orange this season. There's only a couple teams in Division I that are worse, and we're talking about like the real dregs of the world, and I'm not just talking about Louisville either. I'm talking about the teams that are even worse than the Cardinals, way down there at the bottom, like LIU and Hartford and Green Bay. I mean, teams like that, it's a mess. Duke has depth. It has recruiting. It had three-point shooting on that day because it wasn't fooled by Syracuse's little uh, little zone. It has talent that Syracuse doesn't, and it adjusted. One of the programs you saw on Saturday is a blue blood, and the other isn't. And I'll give you a hint. The team that actually wears blue is the one that's in better shape and that owns that distinction. I think the irony behind it is it wasn't just Kyle Filipowski, Carter. Uh, check out theorangefizz.com and go back into our archives. Yes, you'll see a lot of flip as they coin him. Derek Whitehead was another player that we wrote a lot about, and he hit four threes against the zone, which should tell you even more that you shouldn't play the zone against a team that's hitting four threes in the first, or a player that's hitting four threes in the first half, and a team which John Shire prepped them really well for this game by starting two seven-footers. You put Kyle Filipowski at the high post and have Derek Lively at 7-1, uber-athletic, running the short corner, I mean, there were a few dunks that Lively had, and it felt like the NBA All-Star game. I felt like that was a couple days early. It was a joke. I mean, and, and time <laughs> and time again, we've said this. And, and the I think, and I've used ironic a lot because Jim Bam at the beginning of the season said, oh, we're switching between zone and man-to-man. -man. Okay, okay, right? Colgate has two pseudo seven-footers, and Colgate hits, what was it, 19 threes? Um, yeah, the new they, dome record. Right. Later in the year, I'm forgetting the exact team. I don't know if it was Carolina that hit a lot of threes, but whatever it was, Virginia Tech had another one of those games where they had two tall bigs. They put one at the high post and they had Basili manning uh, down low in the paint. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, oh, what a shame. Right. These two big guys are beating us with prolific shooters and young guys that have the potential to shoot the ball on the outside. It's just a constant theme. If you have two seven-footers down low and you have guys that can shoot, Tyrese Proctor is a good shooter. He's a freshman. Jeremy Roach is not a bad shooter. And Derek Whitehead is known for his shooting. And what do you do? You play a zone that helps up uh, near the block S area, 35 feet away from the hoop, to block out any easy passes from Roach. And then when you pass to the ring, you talked to the wing, you talked about leaking up, and that's exactly what Benny Williams, Chris Bell, Malik Brown had to do. What does that do? It opens up the short corner. I'm just painting the picture of what high school coaches would tell their JV players. You pass to the short corner. All Syracuse can do is double with their wing guy that drops down to the short corner. You have your center with one hand up. You pass it to your other seven-footer at the high post. You pass it back to the short corner guy, and he dunks it. Or you go to the far corner 
on the weak side where the ball isn't for a wide open three-pointer in the short corner. You're telling me that me, as someone who is in his early 20s, can tell you what the players and the coaching staff isn't telling 70-some-odd old Jim Beheim. It is ridiculous. This team will go nowhere with the zone. Does it work in some capacity? Yeah, when Virginia Tech only hit three threes. But that's happening once in a blue moon. Duke entered the game shooting 30% from three-point range. They had no 10 or more three-point games in the in the year of 2023. 12 games in 2023, they did not hit 10 or more threes. They had eight in the first half, Carter. Eight. And then what did Syracuse do? Hey, have five more and be efficient. I mean, the run was predicated off Syracuse playing poor defense. And I want to touch on the offense, too. Judah had a good game. Joe had a good second half. That is the only offense. Chris Bell can't shoot. Justin Taylor is fading because he's not getting minutes. Malik Brown is your janitor down low. If Jesse Edwards isn't aggressive, and Jesse had one of the worst games I've seen him play in years, 5.5 rebounds, then you have no presence down low, and you're relying on your two guards to just have fun. It felt like pickup basketball. On offense and on defense, it just was an abysmal performance. I mean, I was at a loss for words when Duke went on that 21-2 run. I don't know about you, Carter. And how quickly that happened, too. And you know what rubs me the wrong way? And, and of course, we have to be careful with how harsh we are about Jim Beheim as per usual. But what I don't understand this season is that he has maintained a couple different times that teaching man-to-man defense is too hard. It's too difficult. It's too complicated, and we can't do it. And then he'll play it for a couple minutes very early in the season against some terrible non-conference team, and maybe it goes okay. Maybe a guy steps out of position one time, and it's almost like that's evidence to him that he can't quite dip his toe into that water. Mm, Nope, after 47 years, still can't teach guys how to do it. Still can't make them understand how to play man-to-man defense, even though probably 350 division one teams out of 360 play it and don't play a zone. Even the worst teams in the country play a man-to-man defense. Even the ones with terrible coaches who aren't in the hall of fame, aren't even close. How difficult can it be to teach man-to-man defense? And, and Carter, are, are Carter. we relying on this gimmick now when it's clearly not working? Because that's what it is at this point. It's a gimmick. It's a trinket of years past. Now, I will say this. I don't think man-to-man would have worked against Duke. I think it would have stopped I agree, the bleeding. Yeah. I, I, don't, I think it would have stopped the bleeding on a 21-2 run. That's all I'm saying. Jim Bayham is a really good head. He's a Hall of Fame-worthy head coach. But unfortunately, his inability to make adjustments in the moment is hurting Syracuse and hurting their chances to make the tournament. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in topic number two. Number two. Topic number two here on Fizz 5, Carter Bainbridge. I'm Cameron Isaiah. Carter, I mean, I think we've talked about it time and time again that this team, their path to the tournament, you have to you have to step through needles, right? You, you avoid the haystack. It's just all needles. You have to step through needles to try to get to a, a plausible case of claiming you're a tournament team. That's how I view Syracuse's tournament chances, not just today, but even a month ago. With the schedule that is left, right, at Clemson, at Pittsburgh, home against Georgia Tech, and then Wake Forest, and then you got to worry about the ACC tournament, do you see a possible path of SU making the tournament? No, I do not. Uh, Cameron is there, and uh, you can go back and find the receipts from a month or two ago where I did say and try to do the mental gymnastics to do it. I did say that if some things happen, Syracuse could do this or do that or sneak its way into the tournament and early on in the season I thought if these players develop and they do certain things then SU can be a low seed kind of like it was in 2020-2021 your typical SU team that kind of loiters around the bubble waits for some things to happen and maybe springs an upset in the ACC tournament boom you're in as a 10 or an 11 or a 9 or something and if that's how we gauge success these days then you could call it a successful season but that is out of the question at this point, and I am no longer interested in doing the mental gymnastics required to try and find a way for Syracuse to get into this tournament, because at this point, it's like trying to perform brain surgery on yourself, trying to figure out a route for this team to get into <laughs> March Madness. And I'll say this, it's impossible for them to do it unless Syracuse wins the ACC tournament outright. And that is 
darn near an impossibility because of all the teams that they would have to play because of how bad the bottom of the ACC is this year with Notre Dame, Georgia Tech, uh, Louisville, and then I think Virginia Tech hasn't quite made up the ground it needs to to get higher. You have those bottom four seeds who are going to play the first round. Syracuse looks like it's probably going to get a bye and then have to face, I think if it ended today, it would be UNC in the second round. But then past that, you've got teams like Duke, like Pitt. You'd probably have to play maybe NC State again or Miami somewhere. Like Even if you made it deep into the ACC tournament, you're not doing it. I just don't think so. Syracuse's botched late games, or late game endings rather, to teams it could have beaten to get a better resume. Instead, it flubbed endings against Pitt, against UNC and Miami. SU lost to Virginia and then got bludgeoned by Virginia Tech in that rematch in Blacksburg. It was such a terrible game. Now, you 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 emerge from the wreckage in Syracuse's 0-6 in quad one. The NC State game didn't even count for quad one. It was quad two uh, the other day. SU's first win over a ranked team since, what was it, January of 21? Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. It yeah. Was, it was so it had been a long time. That is a brutal mark against quad one. And it's even worse news because last year, the SU team with a losing record had three wins in quad one by itself. A lot of other things went wrong for that team. Syracuse has a better overall record this year, but it's not fooling anybody because it's a team that's not built for the tournament. It has starters that aren't consistent enough beyond their roles to just take over games the way you sometimes need it. And other teams see players do unless Jesse Edwards just has an insane game. Like he did against NC state. He was phenomenal in that one hit a three pointer for goodness sake. in that game, I mean, imagine that if Gerard has 20 points, Syracuse wins. If Judah Mintz has a near double, double in points and assists, the team wins. But when you have to rely on other guys like Syracuse had to against Duke, Chris bell is not rescuing you. If things go sideways, against a good team, nor is Malik Brown for, for the good that he does and for how much we've talked about him on the Fizz, and I've been a big proponent of his, he can't rescue you if things go badly and you get stuck in a bad spot against someone good. Add on to this the fact that the ACC is having one of its worst years ever. So Syracuse isn't just a mediocre team. It's a mediocre team in one of the nation's weaker power conferences. So let me let me tell you this. Joe Lenardi's bracketology, right? The the foremost authority, the crystal ball guy who whose job is March Madness and and laying out which teams are going to make it and where and he's usually quite correct. Look at the teams right now that that are ahead of Syracuse and what seeds they have from the ACC. Duke, the team that just beat Syracuse by 22 in the JMA Dome is a 9 seed. Virginia is a three as your highest from the conference. Pitt, as good as that team has been, is also a nine. Clemson, coming up later in the week, has won 19 games and is a bubble team. Isn't even in the last four in right now for Lenardi. How much better are those teams than the Orange? How much better are the Tigers than the Orange? And they're not even on the bubble. I'd say quite a bit better. Then the orange are the Tigers. And we'll see Wednesday. But if you're looking up at all those teams, the rest of them too, Syracuse has no chance. It can't compare resume-wise or depth-wise or quality of uh, of um, of team-wise. I mean, it's just a vast difference between Syracuse and everybody else. I think the stat was that – or not even the stat. Syracuse was like 97th in net ranking. There was a 0% chance – that SU makes the NCAA tournament. Now you might say, okay, the sliver, right? The slivers, they make the they win the ACC tournament. So yes, there's a 0.01% chance that Syracuse makes the NCAA tournament. Now, what is benefiting SU is the record or 16 and 12, right? Am I not getting that mistaken? I think 16 and 12 or 16 and 11, one of the two. So if they win out, which not, you're not beating Clemson and Pittsburgh on the road, you're not sweeping that series, no way. You could beat Georgia Tech, beat Wake Forest, but so does everyone else. So let's say you win out, right? You have 20 wins in the regular season. Okay, great. You beat, you know, good good job. You you beat uh, whatever team, Northeastern. Good job. You go into the ACC tournament, and usually it's okay. Syracuse, what if they can win two games in the ACC tournament? That still doesn't matter. I mean, Carter, you are completely right for headlining the 
0-6 record in quad one games. They're not beating the teams that are barely making the tournament. A couple weeks ago, there was a stat that the ACC teams on the bubble, and these were, I think, the Clemsons of the world, and or it was a couple weeks ago, so maybe NC State was peering into that category. But the ACC teams on the bubble had a combined four or more quad one and quad two wins, and each of them had one or fewer quad three quad four losses i'm pretty sure that syracuse has what do they i think they only have they have a quad three loss and they've lost like 10 quad one or quad two games and they've only won two of them i mean i know i just threw out a lot of numbers but that's just me saying they're not making the tournament there is no way unless they win the acc tournament i could keep building on this carter but you are 100 right this is an exact replica of what happened last season if you close games against good teams You make the tournament. Syracuse hasn't done it. They didn't do it last year. They haven't done it this year. They're not making the tournament. So a lot of negatives that Carter and I are throwing out, but I think they are for the better to not get everyone's hopes up. So if they win the ACC tournament, every Syracuse fan can rejoice, but that's not the case right now. But I do want to focus on a positive, and that'll be on topic number three, which is the point guard who is taking the ACC by storm. Let's head there now. Number three. Topic number three here on Fizz Five. Carter, I don't know about you, but outside of Kyle Filipowski, and I saw him again, you know, you saw him when Duke played Syracuse, and you saw the potential that he has, not just as a college player, but even an NBA talent. I look at Judah Mintz and say he might be the second best freshman in the ACC and a top 10 freshman in the entire country. He had 18 points against Duke and single-handedly kept them in the game at the start of the second half, even though keeping Syracuse in the game wasn't that much of an impressive feat. Either way, Dickie V was on the broadcast uh, with Dave O'Brien, Syracuse grad, and Dickie V said that Judas should come back because I think Judas projected uh, in the mock NBA drafts to finish in the middle of the second round, like someone will take him around 40, 45 that Judaman should come back, take 500 shots per day, and lead the Syracuse team once again. And that made, that kind of uh, uh, created a, a blender of thoughts inside my mind about Joe Girard and Jesse Edwards. They could exercise their fifth years. I want to start with Judah. Do you think Judah should come back or go to the NBA? And then if you could touch on the whole Joe-Jesse situation, because they do each have a year left. Yeah, this this was an interesting one that, I actually wrote about after the Duke game when I had heard what um, what uh, good old Dickie V had said. It was a pleasure to have him in the Dome. I think a lot of people enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, he's been around college basketball a long time. He has seen a lot of diaper dandies, as he calls them, right? Judah Mintz is certainly that, talented freshman. Uh, and prefacing my answer by saying that, of course, I cannot speak for Judah Mintz, right? I'm not him. And he doesn't field questions about this. It's not that he doesn't answer them. It's that no one asks them. So um, for the most part, this has been speculation on the part of of media members and, you know, NBA draft people and and stuff like that. So it's not that Judah is coyly giving answers about, oh, the NBA may do this or I've heard from this team or whatever. You know, nothing like that is happening. So I do agree that he is certainly the caliber of player to be listed on NBA mocks. I mean, it's not... Not a very long draft, so to have him actually in there in the second round is uh, something that he's deserving of because, you know, for all that Jim Beheim has said this year and all that he's been wrong about, including that this is a tournament team at the beginning of the year, he was correct in his assessment of Judah Mintz and was right to hand him the keys to be the point guard of the team as a freshman, compared him to Johnny Flynn. I think at this point you can say that that's a fair comparison. Johnny Flynn was an NBA player. He played for Minnesota back in the day. He was a first-round pick, high pick. Judah Mintz isn't quite there yet, right, according to the mock guys. But I, I think that Judah, if he comes back for another year, I will say this. I, I wouldn't be surprised no matter what he does. So if he comes back for another year and he plays either in a Syracuse uniform or somewhere else, He hasn't given any indication that he wants to be somewhere else, but that's just the nature of the game. Or if he chooses to go to the NBA, I won't be shocked no matter what he does. I think that Judah Mintz is prepared for the professional world. He's got the skills. I think he has the the people skills, just seeing the way that he talks to the media and 
Um, you know, when I've been on media roles, you know, I've seen him answer questions in the locker room and I think that he's ready, right? He's a, he's a seasoned guy. Um, but I, when I wrote about this, I compared him a little bit to another player who was thinking about going to the NBA and came back. And Cam, I don't know if you read the article or not, but I, I talked a little bit about Trace Jackson Davis for Indiana. So the two guys are very different players, right? Trace Jackson Davis is a forward. He's a bigger guy. He plays almost exclusively inside the paint. Uh, he's a sh- he's a shooter, but also a rebounder. Uh, he's been at Indiana for a while, but it didn't look like he was going to come back to Indiana for year number three. After his sophomore year, IU had had a down year, losing record. He had been their leading scorer with almost 20 a game, but Archie Miller, the former head coach, got fired. It was a pretty bad situation for Indiana. And Jackson Davis, having played two years of college and having been basically a star who had won awards, had one foot out the door heading to the NBA draft. He wasn't going to be a top five pick, but he was going to be a guy who was going to be taken as kind of a developmental guy. He had some things to work on. He chose to go back to Indiana because Mike Woodson, former Indiana player, and then you know the guy with coaching experience in the NBA, according to legend, basically sat him down with a bunch of tape and said, here's all the things that you don't do very well. And unless you develop these and work on these, you may have some trouble in the NBA. So come back and let's work on this and let's put you in the best position to succeed. And this year, Jackson Davis has been objectively one of the better players in college basketball. He's got Indiana ranked. Uh, It's been two years since he decided to stay with Woodson. He made the tournament last year. So IU turned it around. He's developed his skills and he has himself in a better position to be drafted higher, better equipped for the NBA. That is not to say that I think Judah Mintz is a deeply flawed player. And obviously they're very different people with different motivations, but Judah Mintz doesn't have a perfect game, right? He's a very bad outside shooter. Um, and a lot of his game sometimes just depends on driving into traffic and seeing what he can do, right? Sometimes that gets him into a little bit of trouble. So just listing those two things off the dome, maybe it would benefit Judah to come back to Syracuse or somewhere else just for the sake of thoroughness in this answer to work on those things. Because I think that Judah Mintz has a successful professional career ahead of him. How ready he is for that coming out of school, he could be more ready for it if he comes back next year. And we'll see. Like I said, I won't be surprised either way. And then touching on the other part of this question with with Joe Girard and Jesse Edwards, who both have extra eligibility, as a lot of players do who are around when COVID hit. It's just kind of a product of, of what guys uh, have left after that. I don't really know what they stand to gain if they return, to be quite honest. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if either of them do, but the infrastructure around them isn't isn't really there to to show me that next year could be that much better from this year. Recruiting is a big part of that. But let's say you get a mix and match out of all three of those guys, right? So let's say, you know, Judah comes back and Joe doesn't and Jesse does. Well, who's going to play the two, right? You can put Justin Taylor over there with uh, one guy in the class of 23 and you're just looking at the transfer portal to try and fill that. It's going to be interesting to watch how these three decide to go about it because I almost get the feeling that you're going to see a couple of them or none at all, because either you want to keep the band together and try to keep some talent together, or these guys are going to go their own ways and just see what they can get out of their pro careers. And unfortunately it's too tough for us to know for sure. I know we would love to have the answers, but we're not any of the three of them and we're not around them closely enough to really know what it is that they're thinking about their futures. I'll make this one kind of short and sweet. I'll be honest. You mentioned this is a very speculative topic where, I mean, we'll know when the players make their announcements, what I think will happen. I think Joe Girard will come back. I think all that he gains from this season. And yes, he's had quite an uptick in his career compared to the last couple of years. What he gains is he'll go to the G league. I mean, as most players do, and they either get swallowed up by the NBA level talent or they progress. And I don't think he will. I think Jesse goes overseas. 
I don't think he gains anything. I feel like he's already proven himself, uh, you know, playing for the Netherlands national team and, and already experienced what the international game is like. So as much as I could see him being in the NBA a little later, I think he goes the international route. So in terms of speculation, that's where at least my knowledge lies. If I, if I'm going to make any assumptions for Judah Mintz, he reminds me a lot of De'Aaron Fox, but less, less polished in making adjustments as you're driving to the rim. So you mentioned he's not great at shooting the ball. In clutch situations, he actually is. You saw against Duke, uh, there was one three where in any other situation, Judah, why are you shooting that? Jim is upset at you. Uh, but but he made the shot. And in clutch situations, I don't think Judah's a bad three-point shooter. But you're right, getting to the rim, he's very reliant on the call. He focuses on that whistle. Uh, he's really strong to the rack, just as deer and Fox is. He's not as explosive with his last step. Um, I think there are moments where he tries to create contact, but doesn't realize a double team's coming, so he doesn't pass it out. That's why he doesn't have a lot of games with a high assist total. Uh, so he reminds me of a less polished NBA player. And what does that tell you? He should play another year of college, because why go to the NBA when you're not as polished as you could be? I think if he plays in college for the next two years, that would benefit him more than trying his luck. I think that's the issue with a lot of Syracuse players. You're so used to playing zone, that doesn't help your draft stock. So you go into the NBA game, you struggle in man-to-man defense, and you think you're you think you're that guy because you're a good offensive weapon getting to the rim. But now you're facing Derek Lively, and then Derek Lively again, and then another Derek Lively. If you don't know who that is, that's the 7-1 freshman on Duke. But you're facing a Derek Lively that's 10 years older. Right. I just there's a lot more experience to come with Judah Mintz. And I think if he polishes his game up and he garners a bit more confidence in his ability uh, to play from behind uh, and and play in clutch situations when his team's not down by five, but it's a tie ball game, I think it would benefit him a lot to come back. So from from what I can gauge judah should come back i agree polish up parts of his game i think joe's an orange lifer he'll come back uh because he has the opportunity to do so and again i just don't think he's as far along as a buddy Bayheim is where i think buddy believes that the g league will actually help him and it's it has been right he had six threes in a g league game career high 26 points for jesse he is such an international player unless he can put on more weight and prove that him against a guy that's seven one is a a positive matchup in his favor. I think Jesse goes international and coming back doesn't really do anything. And actually, I think it hurts Syracuse because now you got a center position that's so deep and you can't even try out any of the other new trinkets you have behind them. So that's what I can speculate from. But I I like what Dickie V said, polish up your shot, polish up your ability to make adjustments on the fly when you're driving. And I think that's what's going to happen next season. I just think it's an interesting topic because those are three guys that Syracuse can't live without and can they next year. So that that's interesting to note. Uh, a player that they're going to have next year, if he ends up signing, I know he just made his verbal commitment today, Monday, February 20th. William Patterson, 7-2 center, just committed to the Cuse, first recruit in the class of 2023. And we'll chat about it on topic number four. Number four. Topic number four here on Fizz 5, and the first time we're saying this, Carter, we have the extreme privilege to christen in this new label, this new headline for Syracuse men's basketball, the first recruit of 2023. Clap it up if you're at home. Uh, This is a big moment for anyone that follows SU men's hoops. And if you're wondering, okay, first recruit of 2023, and this is a lot like when Benny Williams was the lone recruit in 2021. He must be ranked, right? No, got you there. Uh, not ranked at all. Uh, William Patterson, uh, unranked, no stars on uh, 24-7 sports. But here's your upside. He is 7'2". I'll say that one more time. He is 7'2", 220. So if anyone was at the Duke-Syracuse game over the weekend and you saw Derek Lively, the big center, 7'1", he had a couple monumental dunks. Think of an inch taller, and that will be wearing a Syracuse jersey uh, come the fall. But first recruit of 2023, Carter, that's that's something you can take away with at least a smile on your face. But are you still a bit disappointed 
with this recruiting class? Well, I'll answer that in just a moment. But first, let's give the requisite background information about Patterson, go into a little more detail. He's a Brooklyn native, so he's from in-state. Seven foot two, like you said, that's your calling card as a big center. Going to put, you know, get slapped right in the middle of that zone. Out of the class of 23, first SU recruit, no stars on 24-7 sports. That's what we mean when we say not rated, if you're unfamiliar with the uh, the terminology. But here's the thing. Peter Carey wasn't rated either when he was first uh, recruited to Syracuse and when he committed. He was very much an unknown quantity when he came to SU and then he jumped up to be a three-star. I know Carey hasn't played very much this year and eventually got injured, but same sort of deal. It, it's not automatically like you're picking through, you know, the rough in search of a diamond. I mean, sometimes guys are just a little bit lower profile, so it's not unusual. So here's the thing to me, when it comes to the class of 23, this is SU's first, like you said, the last one commit class was Benny Williams in 2021. After that, Syracuse put together its whole big freshman class, and you see a lot of the guy, uh, those guys contributing this year. I would be more upset about only one recruit in the class of 23 if the transfer portal didn't exist. And if the rules right now didn't permit guys to come over and play right away, um, there's always a possibility of getting someone through there to plug a hole wherever it may be. You know, going back to our last topic, let's say Judah stays, Joe stays, Jesse leaves for Europe. You're looking at more playing time for Patterson, maybe, and then maybe you go get a center in the portal, do something, go get another player to 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 even out the depth, depending on who goes, who stays. You know, if Joe unexpectedly leaves, you go get a guard, etc. So even then, you have time to let Patterson develop. And I think he does need to develop, right? We can talk about Derek Lively all we want, but Patterson's over here standing at 220 pounds is that right so he's got the height but he's kind of got the jesse thing going on where he's on the thinner side of of seven foot two got to put some muscle on the frame and then i think you're talking about a guy who's going to be a presence you know down low in the block in the paint uh it, it's an interesting frame to work with but depending on what syracuse brings back you might see him red shirt you might see him play very little kind of like peter carey did this year because you know, you've got John Bull in the mix a little bit. You've got Jesse potentially. Um, Peter Carey's going to be back, although I think that his knees are a little bit of a question at this point after two injuries, one in high school, one in this year. But you don't have to risk this being another Benny Williams type situation where you only get one guy and he doesn't pan out. You don't have to risk that you're getting a guy who comes in and doesn't acclimate. So you're not going to get six good commits every single year. I'm not too concerned about SU's lack of recruiting this year, provided it actually makes more progress next year, 2024, which is the year that Jim Beheim has said that he's focusing on. And I know he said a lot of things this year for better or worse, but you have to take him at his word for that because if there's one thing that we for sure don't know as outside observers, it's what Syracuse's recruiting plans are internally. It's impossible for us to know. So just have faith that SU puts a little bit more effort into the class of 2024. You're, you're always going to have the the top recruits there that Syracuse even now is, is kicking the tires on to try and see what's going on. We'll have to wait and see how that goes, but by no means is Syracuse about to field a a seven-man team with no depth and be in emergency mode just because William Patterson's your only recruit in the class of 2023. So keep your eye on this guy. Intriguing prospect, but it might be a, at least a year or two more before he's a regular contributor. Check out my article on theorangefizz.com. I just posted it today, Monday, February 20th, about 30 minutes after Patterson committed. Um, he had a bit of a delay. Now, he he knocked down his top three or to his top three his his large lift list of schools to TCU Oklahoma State and then Syracuse and that was about four months ago don't ask me why he then committed four months later even though he was hoping his commitment would be done three months ago so first off I would say don't be alarmed that the commitment 
came in February when most commitments come in the fall. I think that was just a feeling out process for Patterson. He was offered after the Syracuse elite camp, which is just proving time and time again that that camp is doing Syracuse quite the service. I mean, the amount of names that have come out of that camp that have been offered that have committed, that's great for Syracuse's odds of landing recruits. I'm not concerned, just as you're not concerned. I have been a consistent fizz fiver in this topic, saying, does it stink? Syracuse will only have one uh, commit. Yes, but you have six last year. This is arguably the sophomore year of Chris Bell, Justin Taylor, Malik Brown, Quittier Copeland, Peter Carey. And again, it's if these players stay. Those sophomore years, and Judah Mintz if he stays too, those are pretty much their freshman years. Like they are getting the experience this season. Chris Bell's getting the starting experience. Now Malik Brown is. Basically, Benny Williams is doing his stuff as a uh, as a sophomore. Uh, Judah Mintz is getting more experience than he ever could have bargained for. Come next year, that'll almost be their proverbial freshman years where they know they have to continue to get better and they will do so maybe in the starting lineup this time. So I wouldn't be alarmed. I wouldn't sound any of the sirens on the fact that Syracuse only has one recruit. So let's hone in more on William Patterson. Rim runner, he knows his role, stays right at the rim. Very Munir Hema-like. In the article, I said he has the floor of John Bullajac and the ceiling of Jesse Edwards. What I mean the ceiling of Jesse Edwards is Edwards' IQ jump from his sophomore to his junior year is unlike anything I've seen before. And I am an avid basketball watcher. So I think that Patterson, if he puts the um, the muscle on and he understands the position more and, and how it's changed in this new era of basketball where it's not, hey, big man, you're 7'2", stand at the block and don't move. I think if he understands that a bit more, he doesn't have to be a stretch guy, but understand your role. And all Syracuse needs from him is, and I, again, wrote this on the on my article on theorangefizz.com, all they need from Patterson is on offense, you take the opposing team's premier rim protector out of the picture. So you draw him out of the paint and you pass the ball as a big man. On defense, you block shots, right? You you help down low and you are the premier shot blocker and you run the floor when you get the ball on offense, when you're going transition from defense to offense. That's all they need out of Patterson. I think he'll be a good player in a couple of years, but I wouldn't take too much stock in it other than the fact that he's from in-state. He does go to prep school in New Jersey, so yes, he's ventured a little bit outside of it, but don't be alarmed. It's a good sign to see them get a recruit. I think new blood is always good, and I love that they're that they're deepening the center position because that was always a concern over the past couple of years. So good job for Syracuse for landing someone. I think the sophomores will be having their quote-unquote freshman seasons all over again next year, which will, which will be good because youth, right? Okay, let's head to topic number five, Syracuse men's basketball. In a couple of days, they go to Death Valley to face a Clemson team that was hot, but they've lost four of five. We'll preview them in topic number five. Number five. Okay, topic number five, Carter. I don't know how much you know about the Clemson Tigers, but they've been really good this season. If you ax the month of February, it's been quite the stretch for them. I mean, Clemson at one point was at the top of the ACC, the the Shockers, right? With Miami and Pittsburgh. Of course, you had Duke at, at a time in that conversation. But you had Clemson, Miami, and Pittsburgh, and Clemson sort of fallen off. Now they fall into some of the best teams in the ACC outside of their last loss when they, <laughs> they lost to Louisville. But, uh, uh, you know, knowing that Syracuse is playing them Wednesday, knowing that SU is going to Clemson, how would you see that matchup shaping up? Well, this is a, an interesting one because I think you're looking at a team in Clemson that is kind of what we expected Syracuse to be. Not necessarily the most consistent team this year, but still one that saw development from some of the guys who had recently come in and to form a, a cohesive unit that put itself right on the bubble. Syracuse has has fallen below those expectations. Clemson last year was kind of a mm, whatever kind of team. 17 and 16, lost its second game in the ACC tournament, finished exactly the same place that Syracuse did. Only a game separated the two in the win-loss record. 
This year, Clemson right now is 19-8, and eight, even with a really bad month of February, capped off by a loss to none other than Louisville and a 10-point loss at that. It wasn't even close. This is still a squad this season for Clemson that has kind of captured the imagination of Tigers fans. It's, it's a feel-good team led by some guys who have been here a while and others who have come in to surprise by how much they've contributed. And we talked a little bit earlier in this Fizz 5 about just how Duke gave Syracuse problems with the way its team is structured with a couple really good bigs in Lively and Filipowski and then a couple guards who can really shoot. Clemson is is that team. Clemson's basically Diet Duke is the way if you want to look at it. Store brand Duke that no one's really talking about because Clemson has two big guys who are their two leading scorers. Hunter Tyson is a forward. He's six foot eight. He's played really well this year after a broken collarbone kind of ruined his year last year. He missed 10 games and didn't really look the same in the ones he played afterward. He's the current leading scorer for that team right now, and he's just ahead of PJ Hall, the center for Clemson, who's six foot ten. So neither of them are like seven footers, but they're still big guys. You get a forward and a center who are both putting up 15 points a game. Hall has been just as consistent this year as he did as he was last year. And those two guys both have size. They can both score. So SU from the jump may have to play big just to match up with them. That means playing Edwards and Brown, and maybe we'll see Munir Hima in there for periods of time. I'm not sure this is a great matchup for Benny Williams or Justin Taylor. I'm not sure you're going to see a ton of movement out of the forwards in this game beyond necessity just to give guys breathers. And then with the guards for Clemson, you have Chase Hunter and Brevin Galloway. Hunter was sort of your sixth man type last year for Clemson, but he's more than doubled his scoring output this season, and he racks up a ton of assists. He He's the distributor of that whole team. And then Brevin Galloway is a really interesting cat. Uh, he's in his seventh year of college basketball. He, he So he played uh, at College of Charleston for a long time, including a redshirt year. Then he went to BC last year and was really dreadful for the Eagles. I mean, he had a really difficult year with BC, got stuck on the bench after he was used to being a starter at Charleston, just never found his footing, had an awful game against Syracuse last year, went two for 15 from the field. But now he's at Clemson in year number seven in college basketball, and he's just found himself. He's putting up 10 a game, and he's close back to home. He's from Anderson, which is about 30 minutes from Clemson. So he was first in state and then went to Massachusetts, and now he's back. He's closer than ever. So he's kind of the feel-good story of this team. So now that you have all that background information, Here's the verdict that I'll give you is that even despite its last loss to Louisville, this is a Clemson team that has beaten Duke, that has beaten Virginia Tech, that has beaten NC State, and absolutely demolished the the weaker teams in the conference, Louisville being the exception. The Tigers are looking to win their 20th game on Wednesday and are probably pretty motivated after a embarrassing loss to the Cardinals. This is a difficult matchup, not just for that reason, but also because of the way this team is structured. You've got bigs who are your scorers. You have guards who can also burn you from outside. So SU has a tough task here, particularly on the road, having to go down to Clemson and play this team that, despite losing four or five, I still believe is probably going to be a tournament team. This is not going to be a fun game if you're a Syracuse fan. I'm sorry. Uh, Between Hunter Tyson, P.J. Hall, you mentioned Galloway finding himself, Chase Hunter. I mean, there's not a lot, especially when because Syracuse is away. There's not a lot of optimism I have fresh off that Duke game that from an individualistic standpoint, these players will find a way to come together in one of the hardest places to play, little John Coliseum. At least it's felt like that this season when Clemson's last home game. And, and I understand it, it was against Florida state. So that's not much, you know, you're not saying that much that they won by 40. I know. Yeah. Carter I, for everyone that, because obviously everyone's listening and you're not watching Carter just lifted up his, uh, 
his two hands and put a four and an O. Yeah, it was 94 to 54. Unfortunately, the winning formula for Syracuse is outscore Clemson. What is it so hard to do to outscore Clemson? I mean, they're just so they're so technically sound on both sides of the ball. And yes, they lost to Louisville, but they were at Louisville. And that was one of their few blunders on the road. And that, right, they, they beat Virginia Tech on the road. Uh, I think they beat North Carolina on the road. Like those are tough places to play. And you're coming off your worst loss of the season with the type of players they have on the road while Syracuse is coming off its worst loss of the season at home. And SU is arguably and one of the worst ACC teams on the road. I just don't see a lot of optimism. Judah Mintz is going to do his thing. Can Joe Girard do anything but run down to the block and Steph Curry it, curl around a screen at the wing, and hopefully Jesse Edwards doesn't foul out an illegal screens with P.J. Hall guarding him? I don't know. Clemson can shoot the three ball. They're not great, but over 35% is something, right, as a team. I just don't have a lot of confidence in this game. I don't think anyone should. This is a game that Syracuse has to win to help with that with that bleak tournament resume. And Carter, you laid out all the reasons that they won't, and I agree that they're not going to as well. You have a score prediction for me? Oh, goodness. Well, Syracuse isn't going to lose by 40 uh, like Leonard Hamilton's squad did when it put up such a terrific uh, fight the other day. But I'll go with um... – how about Clemson 80, Syracuse 72? Oh, wow. So you think Syracuse so I, will score 72? I, I, think, I think it'll be a decently high-scoring game, but I do think that Clemson at home is not about to be outscored by an SU team limping off the Duke loss. I agree with you. I think it'll be 78-63. to 63. Um, Unless Joe Girard scores 30, I, no confidence. Uh, Judiments can do his thing. Jesse Edwards can score and rebound, but just the ancillary options are so abysmal in the second half. And I think that will be their detriment. That'll wrap things up on Fizz Five with Carter Bainbridge. I'm Cameron Ezer. Make sure to check out our articles, theorangefizz.com. Read them and weep. And well, if you're a Syracuse fan, you can weep. And then head over to our Twitter at Orange Fizz, and we'll be posting all, all of our articles there. Live tweeting the game on Wednesday. That'll be my responsibility. I'll be hopping on Twitter live after the game. And if you've missed me already, the game on Saturday against Pittsburgh, I'll also be live tweeting and I'll be doing the Twitter space after the game. So please join me if you're listening to this. But again, for Carter, I'm Cam, and we'll catch you next week. And that's your Fizz 5. Listen next week. Subscribe, rate, and review. This has been an Orange Fizz production.